It was a very bright, shining light, Sarajevo, and they needed to kill that light. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. U2, they represent a personification of our resistance. The Hollywood Reporter hails Kiss the Future moving and inspirational. Kiss the Future! Viva Sarajevo! Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply. I got to tell you, before I even give the date or what we're doing or what the title is or what my name is, I'm pretty excited this morning. I'm Josh Pate, another edition of the Late Kick Extra podcast for Tuesday morning, January 19th, the year of our Lord, 2021. And the reason I'm excited is not because the season's over, that uh, you can shed some tears over. However, this is where we get to get a little bit more loose with the podcast and the format. We get a few more creative questions. I mean, you guys have really brought it today. I've got a lot that already... I'm ready to spill over into the Thursday morning podcast. A quick reminder on what the format is here. It's all Q&A, wall-to-wall. You drive it, I follow. You ask, I answer. You can submit questions via email, joshpate706 at gmail.com. You can follow me, first off, on Twitter, at LateKickJosh, and then send me direct messages there. And this is really good stuff, so I'll try to get to as many as possible. And I told you, as we get into the offseason, I'm going to try and go back to more of that rapid-fire style that most of you say that you like better, which is fit as many possible questions as we can into a podcast instead of picking just two or three and stretching. Because to be honest with you, that's what we do on Late Kick Live. We go a little bit more in-depth and get a little bit more granular in our detail on those segments. And obviously, there's a marketplace for that, and there's a marketplace for the quick-hitting type stuff. But what we try and do here is we go as many angles as possible. It's wide open. I've got a lot of college football questions, obviously. But you guys have sprinkled in some non-college football questions this morning, and I get just as excited about those. So let's dive right in. I think it's obvious where we're going to go ahead and start. I don't know which name to pick out of the hat because it seems like about 14 million of you, give or take a few, asked about the Tennessee situation. And for the record, if you go on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel, I put a full reaction video up. As I told Director Colin when we were walking out of the studio Sunday night, I kidded with him, but I was I ended up being pretty prophetic. I said... Yeah, we don't have another live show until Thursday night, but don't worry. We'll be talking about Jeremy Pruitt being fired tomorrow. And sure enough, it happened exactly along that timeline. Full disclosure, now that this has happened, I can sort of peel the layers back. Uh, there are going to be some more layers I can't peel back, but someone is going to peel back. Fairly certain. And that has to do more with um, the details of what exactly happened here. Uh, there, There's a lot of reporting that's been done on this. I think some of the reporting was frowned upon at the time. A lot of the reporting was called out at the time and ended up being dead on the money. Uh, Our buddy Trey Wallace, who I appear with on radio in Knoxville every week, has done a really good job on this. Mark Schlebaugh, Chris Lowe at ESPN, they've done a really good job. Pete Thamel with Yahoo actually was the first to break the story uh, yesterday morning of Pruitt being fired. All that's going to come out in the wash. Uh, It's going to be details that, as I'm about to talk about, You're not going to be, if you're a Tennessee fan, so much mad at from the ethical perspective. You're going to listen to the details and you're going to think by and large, "Um, yeah, okay, we did that. But I think a lot of our rivals probably do that. I don't have the evidence, but I think we do, or I think they do. That's not where you're going to have a serious bone to pick. You're going to have a serious bone to pick from the procedural standpoint. And what you're probably going to say when all the details surface is, how could we be this stupid? I mean, how could we 
not know this is pure amateur hour. Like if you're going to drive 90 miles an hour in a 70 mile an hour zone, at least have a radar detector, at least turn on the Waze app. Like don't just drive through downtown going 90 with your middle finger waving out the window. That's just asking for it. That's where you're going to get really grade A ticked off if you're a Tennessee fan. And if you're a rival fan, you're going to look and just shake your head and and scoff and go, God, man, again, pure amateur hour. That's one of the prices you pay. I've talked about this before. Some of you have pushed back on it with some anecdotal examples. But I have always told you if I'm running a major program, I am not handing the keys to that vehicle over to a first-time head coach. I'm not doing it because I don't have to do it. I shouldn't have to do it. Now, you guys have pushed back, and you have given me the exceptions to the rule, some of you, not all of you. You'll say, what about Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma? What about Kirby at Georgia? What about Ryan Day at uh, Ohio State? And I say, yeah, those are great examples, okay? Now, are you ready for the three or four dozen that I could throw back at you, Jeremy Pruitt being the latest, that prove, okay, those are the exceptions to the rule? There's a lot that you need to know how to do as a head coach that you only have one way to learn, and that's being a head coach. Do you want to let someone learn the hard lessons on your dime? I My answer has always been no. So what I think about it largely was summed up in the video that I put out. But I think uh, just the couple of things to note here are, first and foremost, as I said, I don't think this was such an ethical dropping of the ball as much as it was a procedural dropping of the ball. It's not so much what you did, it's how you did it and how you didn't do it. But then the other part that's kind of concerning uh, and the reason I'm not even talking about which coach is going to take over there is because I don't think that's at the forefront right now. That's not the conversation to me. The conversation to me right now is when is it over? Like, when do we know one way or the other? That was one of the questions asked to the chancellor there and the president and Philip Fulmer at the press conference yesterday. Hey, when is this investigation going to end? Well, the answer was, remember, this is a two pronged investigation. We've got our internal investigation And the answer to that was, well, it could end pretty soon. But then there's the NCAA investigation, and the answer was, I don't know. I have no clue from the chancellor herself. I don't know when the NCAA investigation is going to end, but they did say they expect multiple level one and level two violations. I mean, those are big-time heavy hitter violations. You're going to have sanctions handed down. Don't know how severe they're going to be, but you're going to have sanctions handed down. And all the while, Kevin Steele is not in the interim role. That's not what they named him. They named him acting head coach, not interim head coach. I think if you just read the tea leaves here, I don't care what they said at that press conference yesterday. Kevin Steele was brought in as an insurance policy if and when they had to fire Jeremy Pruitt, and they have since done that, to be your head coach. That's what he's there for. And it wouldn't shock me at all if he was the head coach throughout spring. And it wouldn't shock me at all if when they teed it up, whenever we finally do to start the 2021 season, if he was still the head coach. In fact, if I had to place money right now, that's where I'd place a few of my shekels is in the corner of Kevin Steele to be the head coach in 2021 as you just get stuff figured out. That's what's up with the Tennessee situation right now as we move on this morning, because as I promised, we're not going to take 10 minutes per answer. Foster asked, You talk about the importance of culture in college football programs a lot on your show. What do you think are maybe the top two or three factors to building a dominant culture? And do you think Texas A&M football has that culture with Jimbo that can rival the top blue bloods in the sport like Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, etc.? I think you're on your way at Texas A&M. So you asked for the two or three. I'll give you three. got to have the right head coach. First and foremost, you got to have the right leadership in place. And I think athletic director, president, like there are a lot of key figures that have to be on board with the direction of the organization, which brings me to my next point. 
which is organizational buy-in. You cannot, it doesn't even matter if you have the right coach. If he keeps getting told no, whereas your rivals are getting told yes, you're dead in the water. If you don't get the facility upgrades that you need, if you can't get the support staff size that you need, if you can't get as many analysts as you need, if you can't get your recruiting budget approved, if so many things that you need because the Alabamas and Georgias and Clemsons have, you can't get because the entire organization isn't bought in, then you don't have what it takes. And the third thing is you have to take what's in your mind and you have to have the ability to sell that vision to players and your staff and have them buy into it. You know, when you listen most recently to a team like Alabama win a title and you listen to their players talk and you watch, you know, the fact that like Jalen Waddle and guys like Landon Dickerson, I mean, they're fighting to try and get on the field in a game that they don't need to be on the field and a game that a lot of people are criticizing them even mildly from the outside world for being on the field during because they're injured. Like that is culture, just bleeding through your TV screen and yelling at you. This is what championship culture looks like. But really what it is, is just getting folks to be process oriented over result oriented. And that's the ability to rewire the brains of 17 and 18 and 19 year old kids to stop thinking about individual awards, accolades, stop thinking about the prize that you're chasing, put all that to the side and have the ability to make those kids think about every single day doing what it takes to achieve it. You may be able to get some individuals to do that. When you can get an entire organization to do that, that's when you got a dominant culture. That's when you're giving yourself a shot to potentially compete for a national championship. You got to have all those boxes checked just to put yourself in the arena. Then once you put yourself in the arena, you find out there are a few other programs that have accomplished things to that degree as well. Bama's one of them. Uh, any given year, Buckeyes, Clemson Tigers, uh, Georgia, Oklahoma, uh, maybe someone from the West Coast steps up eventually. Like all those teams are in that arena, and you could add Texas A&M to the mix, for example. That's why I really love watching those teams when they go head to head. I mean, you're talking about some high level competition that you'll look back on decades from now and still enjoy because of that reason. Oh, let's see here. Okay, Caleb is next up. Here we go. Off the beaten path a little bit already this morning. Caleb said, you've mentioned a time or two how you like storm chasing. I wanted to know what's the most dangerous situation you found yourself in. All right. Now, I think I have talked about this before, but we got a ton of new listeners. Like month over month, we've added a ton of listeners to the show and the podcast. And you know what? This is a fun story probably to listen to on repeat anyway. So the last two years on March 3rd, I've been in extreme close proximity to an EF4 tornado, both of those days. Now, once it was my option, the other, it was not my option. March 3rd, 2019, we are chasing storms. It's a very active weather day across the Southeast. I got a group that I chase with, I have for a long time. We're down in Dothan, Alabama. There is a massive supercell coming through uh, Montgomery, Alabama, just south of Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, these cells are moving south, southwest, north, northeast, about 30 to 50 miles an hour. They move at a pretty good clip in the spring in the Southeast. So we think we have time to shoot back up the highway and roughly meet this cell in the Auburn, Lee County, Opelika, that kind of area. So we're booking it north, hoping that there is no law enforcement between here and there. We get to Phoenix City, Alabama, and then start to head west on Highway 280. Uh, this is a confirmed tornado. It's on the ground. I've got it pulled up and pinged on radar scope combined with our current location. It's just a storm-chasing weather app. Really good one. I mean, it's affordable. If, I, if, I, if you're a weather nerd, I'd download radar scope. And so uh, we also, back at our home base at the news station that I was working at at the time, 
uh, my good buddy, Dana Barker, along with our chief meteorologist there, who at the time was Miller Robson, like they're anchoring coverage from the studio. We are reporting live from the field. So um, it is a big time storm. It, the All the classic signatures are on radar. Uh, there is a clear debris ball that's evident on radar. So we know we got a really big tornado on the ground. And we are coming in from the northern flank, which is a terrible place to be. Uh, that is in the meteorological and storm chasing industry, a term called core punching, which is where you're going to have to go through the highest precipitation portion of a supercell instead of coming in from the south where you get a nice, clear, picturesque view. I know where we are. Our driver does not. Our driver was relatively new. He's taken instruction from me. Uh, he is not a weather type. He is a dude that we can use the car of type, if you catch my drift. And so I kept him willfully ignorant of where we were and how close we were. Uh, we got an EF4 tornado on the ground. This tornado ends up killing 23 people. We get as close as we can, and then uh, we turn around, and we got about a minute, minute and a half before it crosses the path where we were at. So we get out of there. We let it cross. We come back in behind it. It's devastation, unlike anything you could possibly imagine. The first thing, when, you, when you're in a heavily wooded area and a tornado has come through, the smell of pine, especially in the south, the smell of pine from all the trees that have been snapped, it momentarily like stops up your nostrils as much as if you were to step outside a 72-degree room into sub-zero degree temperatures. That's how thick it is. And um, there were a lot of terrible things that we uh, ran into. So it was a really bad situation. It took um, help, first responders. It took quite a while to get in there because of the total tree damage, not extensive. It was total. It's the first time I had ever personally witnessed debarking of trees. It was that violent a tornado. It was rated right around the same intensity as the tornado that hit Tuscaloosa back in 2011. Uh, that one took over 40 lives. This one took over 20 lives. But that one was March 3rd of 2019. And the search and rescue that happened thereafter uh, was something that kept us out. I think we were out there all night and I ended up going live from just outside Beauregard, Alabama, where the core of the damage was at six o'clock the next morning. Uh, I don't think we went home, actually, if, if I remember correctly. So that was a wild, wild night. I then moved to Nashville this last January. And then March 3rd, a year to the day of that experience, March 3rd, 2020, it is well after midnight. There are, there are severe storms moving through, which means I don't sleep. Now, obviously, I was not out chasing in the middle of the night in a new city, but I was following the situation pretty closely, and there is a cell going across northern Davidson County, which is where Nashville, downtown Nashville is. So um, I live in this big apartment complex. I live right in the middle of downtown Nashville. So I know exactly what I'm looking at again. I got it pinged on radar scope just like a year prior, except I'm in an apartment building instead of in a car. A key of soul for the for the record. So I hightail it down to our stairwell. As that tornado starts to move through downtown, extremely violent, shook the entire building. This is a new building. This place has not been here all that long. I was the only person in the entire complex that got to the stairwell in time. Our building got sideswiped by the tornado itself. We we had some damage, like we had some structural damage, but we didn't have a single fatality here. Others around here were not so lucky. That one carried with it several fatalities, a couple of them right across from me, a couple of dozen more across the river into East Nashville and points beyond there. And that was another EF4 tornado. And that one was total chaos. I didn't have anything that I could do other than go to the roof of the parking garage uh, because I didn't know how structurally sound the building still was. 
and I just watched out over the city. Totally dark. I could still see power flashes in the distance from where the tornado's still on the ground, and it's moved across the Cumberland River. It's moved into East Nashville and beyond. It was doing terrible, terrible stuff over there. So I remember... There was no power. The fire alarm screamed for hours, hours and hours, several hours. Couldn't go to sleep. Uh, we had a very, very important day at work the next day. I remember this. I was still pretty new at 24-7, and we were launching Late Kick that week. We had our first and only dry run that we were even going to schedule, Director Colin and I, that day. So, I mean, I work missing work that day was not an option. Had a big editorial meeting that day. I mean, these things should pale in comparison and in retrospect, they really should have. But I mean, I know I'm okay at that point, And it's not necessarily a new environment for me. Everyone else is freaking out and screaming, understandably. So I'm just trying to figure out, is there a way to go to work today? Can I make it happen? And I ended up making it happen. But those were really crazy times. I mean, I've lived here in Nashville a year. Actually, oh man, so a year ago today. Well, congratulations. You just witnessed me realize uh, my one-year anniversary living here. Um, not even live, but you know what, Jordan? Let's just leave it in there. So let's clap. Okay. All right. Applause for one in here. Let's. We don't have champagne, but we can do that sound effect with our mouth. All right. We're good. Now, the celebration is over. We return to our normally scheduled podcast. And in the time I've been here, everyone's ended up going through the pandemic. But can you say that your building has been hit by a tornado and been a couple of blocks away from a bombing? Because I can. It's not necessarily something to brag about, but it is something that I will, in extremely dramatic fashion, tell my kids one day. All right, we roll on this morning. Where are we going next? Declan asks, how long until other major Power 5 programs find their David Ballou and Matt Ray? One could argue those two people from Indiana were the cause of Indiana suddenly being good and Alabama's high level of dominance. This is a good point. So if you don't know who Matt Ray and David Ballou are, they are the sports science and strength and conditioning duo that Nick Saban went to hire after what was labeled as a crippling blow was dealt to his program when Kirby Smart hired Scott Cochran, who had been there a long time. Talked about this a lot on Late Kick Live the other night, kind of chuckled at the notion that that was a crippling blow. And we we called that at the time. So, I mean, we were all over that. That, that Internally, I mean, they had had a problem at Alabama for a while. Nick Saban was looking for a change. He definitively upgraded his program when he added Ray and Ballou. Now, I think this is a really good observation from Declan here. It's not just that Alabama looked great this year. I mean, they've been there less than a year, and I certainly saw their impact. I think Devontae Smith was a different player this year. Guy had a different gear, different yard after catch, explosive type traits that I didn't see from him a year before. I think Najee Harris added several million dollars onto his NFL value because of being around those guys. So um, they're good to follow on Twitter too. But those guys this year, yeah, they were responsible for uh, largely an injury-free season. There were a few blows dealt to Alabama, but nothing in terms of lower extremity injuries to the degree that they had in years past. I can't definitively prove that. I can just tell you anecdotally that's the case. But Declan pointed out, what about Indiana? You know, the residue from those guys being at Indiana could still be felt. Indiana, you could not explain by mere recruiting rankings why Indiana was so good this year. Now, was it solely because of a sports science and strength and conditioning duo? I wouldn't say that. I think Tom Allen had a lot to do with that. I think offensive talent had a lot to do with that. But, I mean, you're kidding yourself if you don't think that there's a role, at least, that they played there. Now, the second question he asked is, when does everyone else get theirs? Well, it's already in the process of happening. Now, these guys are 
and now they are renowned as the best in the business. Some people thought they were already, and Nick Saban certainly did. And so the new hunt in this sport is to find the best strength and conditioning slash sports scientist types out there. And I told you guys, if you were watching in the spring, when these when this duo was hired at Alabama, I told you, you know, there was some internal thought that LSU had passed Alabama in this arena, in the sports science arena. LSU, I agreed with this, by the way. LSU had bypassed Alabama. Well, it was brief. Nick Saban didn't let that last long. And so now when you look around at what the big moves are, programs are trying to make in the offseason, there are two areas to look at. Number one, and it's completely unrelated to this, the first area is everyone is looking, because of the transfer portal, to add another leg to their scouting departments. You've always had your high school scouting departments. Most of them have had JUCO scouting departments. But now, because so many guys are transferring in college, you have to have sort of a college, an FBS, FCS scouting department. you got to have scouted other players in college because chances are some of them are going in the transfer portal and you may need help from the transfer portal. So you got that. But then also, everyone wants to be on the cutting edge of sports science. Everyone is upgrading their facility plans to include what Alabama has in the sports science department. I mean, they've got immaculate facilities, and it's all functional. It's all purpose-driven. It's impressive to be around, I can tell you. Now, as we move on here, and I take a little sip of caffeine. Excuse me for a second. Ah, nice. I'm recording this extremely late at night. So um, chances are, because of what I'm drinking right now, I will not have slept by the time you listen to this, which is okay. That's what God made the offseason for. So Daniel's got a good question that a lot of you have been asking lately, or at least a version of. You guys have been curious. With all this talk about expand the playoff here and pay players there and NCAA sanctions looming over here, some of you have asked, hey, what about that Knight Commission report we heard a lot about in the middle of the season? And that's the one that recommended, hey, the top programs, why don't you just split entirely and form your own sport? Like form your own new college football. Well, I got a couple of thoughts on it, and I'll give them to you right after this. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As promised, here's the question from Daniel. I'll answer it after this. Now that it's the offseason, I wanted to get your opinion on the Knight Commission recommendation from early December that FBS football break away from the NCAA and form their own separate system. Do you think it would be advantageous for football to be under its own governance? If so, what would you want to see this new governing body accomplish? Well, you named it, Daniel. So let's first go into the hypothetical land where this does happen. I think self-governance is what it's all about. And self-governance essentially means you're doing away with the NCAA as your sanctioning or governing body. So it's no longer the NCAA that investigates. It's no longer the NCAA that hands down ruling. I mean, you've gotten together with, whether it be 30 other schools or 75 other schools, you have formed your own ecosystem and you form your own governing body. How you do that is up to you. 
how you enforce, which rules do you want to enforce, which rules do you want to do away with, how do you define amateurism, what is a student athlete, do you adopt the Olympic model, all that stuff about compensation and name, image, and likeness, you handle that amongst yourselves. But that is the main goal right there. The ability with too much money on the line to self-govern instead of handing that out to a third party, in this case, the NCAA. Now, th there are obviously several hurdles. The Knight Commission had no authority. I mean, the Knight Commission was just sort of a group that got together and said, okay, we're done. Here is what we think. You guys do with it what you want. They were a glorified consulting firm. So you got a lot of contracts that are in place. This is like walking into five different spider webs at one time and then trying to figure out how to get all that web off of you. Well, that's about how hard this would be to accomplish. However, it would not be impossible to accomplish. You know, you take a blowtorch to yourself, it's going to take care of the spider web. Now you're going to get burns all over yourself, but hey, you'll be free of the spider webs. You got to get yourself out of TV contracts. I mean, you've got interconference contracts, you've got scheduling contracts. I mean, you've got a lot of the sport figured out over the next several years contractually in many cases that you'd have to figure out a way to get yourself out of. Is this something that you adopt, but you plan to enact in the 2027 season? You've got TV contracts years and years and years down the road that have already been agreed to. How does this change that? There are a lot of questions, obviously, you'd have to ask. I think it's much more something that exists in a hypothetical world than any other world. What I'd be looking at, what I am looking at, more so than maybe the Knight Commission recommendation being adopted, is when are we going to get the next round of conference expansion? That's what I'm looking at. I don't care about playoff expansion. I'm against it. You guys know my feelings there. What about conference expansion? You know, instead of spending all this time arguing and debating over whether Cincinnati and Central Florida should have a shot in the playoff, I'm more interested if there's going to come a time where Cincinnati has a shot to join the Big Ten or Central Florida has a shot to join the ACC, Houston, Memphis, and the SEC. Like, I'm interested... Who gets the next shot at the Power 5 table? That's what I'm more interested in. Uh, Dwight is next up. Now, Dwight asked a longer question. I'm kind of paraphrasing the very end here. He said, how are we going to know when the Alabama dynasty actually is coming to an end? And this is born off of something I was talking about the other night. I did a very lengthy segment on Late Kick Live. You can find it on the uh, YouTube channel. It's It's got its own individual cut now over there if you just want to watch this portion where I was talking about how laughable it was in retrospect to think about all the times that people had talked about the Alabama dynasty, Nick Saban's dynasties coming to an end. And there was the time where everyone thought the hurry up, no huddle was going to pass Alabama by. Well, then Nick Saban evolved and stayed on top of the sport. And then there was the, well, Clemson has bypassed Alabama. Dabo Swinney has bypassed Alabama. Yet here they are as a program, as a head coach, still on top of the sport. And then most recently, I mean, I'm not kidding when I told you just earlier last year when Scott Cochran left Alabama, like a lot of people have forgotten this now, at the time, that was viewed as a borderline death blow. I mean, there were very reputable people, extremely bright and normally really sharp folks in our industry, suggesting that was one of the biggest blows ever to Alabama. Not only was it not and never was, but Nick Saban upgraded his program because of that, and now they are reaping the benefits in the form of yet another national championship. The answer to Dwight's question, when will you actually know? Because that was how he phrased it. He said, okay, all this has happened, and it's not a sign that Alabama's dynasty is slowing down. Well, when are we going to know if it is? Dwight, the answer is when Nick Saban retires. That will be the first sign. And then you've got to talk about who they're hiring to replace him. But that's the sign that you're waiting on. 
And the bad news for those of you who are not Alabama fans or do not like Alabama is I don't think that's coming anytime soon. And normally you would think to yourself, okay, well, even if he's not going to retire anytime soon, well, as he's getting older, obviously things will start to wane and year over year, the product will start to deteriorate. No, it won't. There's no sign of that. I want you to think about this. Right before I started recording, I thought about this. Nick Saban is going to be 70 this year. That means when he was hired at Alabama back in 2007, he was like mid-50s. And he was going to go on in 2009, 11, and 12 to win three national titles in four years. What if I were to tell you during that stretch, hey, yeah, this is nice, and it's really impressive that he's going to win three national titles in four years, but this program's not even close to what he's going to have about eight or nine years from now. And I'm serious about that. Like, those teams were really good. Nick Saban's never had an Alabama football program operating at the level he's got it operating at right now. They have not consistently recruited at the level they're recruiting at right now since he's been there. And that includes a ton of number one classes. The classes he's putting together right now are all-time historic. The offenses he's putting on the field, the talent he's sending to the NFL, it's all-time historic. The coaching staffs that he has been assembling, all-time historic. So it's, it's not just that he's not slowing down. They're surging. He's about to be 70 this year. They're surging. So I don't see any sign in the near future that things are slowing down. But the answer, Dwight, is when he retires. That is when I will believe that it's slowing down and not until then. All right, we got a good couple of questions here from Isaac. First question, why is there so much negativity surrounding the sport of college football that seems to not exist in other sports? It feels like all I hear these days are questions about Clemson and Alabama ruining college football or whether the playoff needs to expand, and because it hasn't, college football is being ruined. It seems like people are always talking about what needs to be better instead of enjoying what a great sport we already have. Now, if you didn't know any better, you think I wrote that question because I agree with every word of it. I said as much on the show the other night. 95% of you approved of it. Some of you thought I took too much of an adversarial tone. Maybe you're right, uh, but I meant it, and I meant every word of it and felt every word of it, and I wholeheartedly agree, Isaac, with what you're saying here. It's never, it's always boggled my mind to be around people who seem to be miserable covering the sport I love. Now, similarly, I guess a molecular biologist would look at me being bored out of my mind doing what they love to do for a living, and they may scratch their head. But here's the difference. You don't accidentally become a molecular biologist. Most of the time, you have had to seek out that specific profession. No one just trips into one. You may trip into becoming a secretary and not like being a secretary. You may be an accountant and just kind of fell into that role and you don't really love it. Those are much more popular and widely available jobs compared to a molecular biologist. I feel the same way about our business. There is so much demand and thirst to get in this industry, and there are so few amounts of jobs within the industry. How does anyone just happen to grab one? I've never accepted that explanation. And so the only other explanation is someone sought out these roles, even though they don't love the sport. Now, when I talked about that the other night, I had some folks push back on it. I intentionally, as I told you, did not mention a name, an organization, anything like that. I didn't mention a specific story because it wasn't about drawing attention to one person. I was drawing attention to an idea. And the idea being, I don't get why people work in this industry if they don't love the sport. So I get the pushback from the usual suspects that, well, just because everyone's not waving the pom-pom, all rah-rah, yeah-yeah for college football, it doesn't mean we aren't doing meaningful work, which I never suggested. Uh, those were hit dogs barking the loudest. 
Because I did, I, they put words in my mouth. I didn't put those words in my own mouth. I didn't say those words. There's a lot of meaningful work out there that's done. I mean, listen, a lot of people have covered this Tennessee fiasco. That's not been good news. That's not waving the pom-pom. I mean, there's a lot of reporting going on that's uncovering a lot of wrongdoing there. I think it's been phenomenally reported. I think a lot of the work on name, image, and likeness has been phenomenally done. I think the, the Baylor sexual assault scandal was very well reported by certain entities. There's a lot of ugly to the sport. But you're right, Isaac, in saying it is dwarfed by the beauty of the sport, too. And there's a lot more of that. And you're talking about the types that tend to focus on the 1 to 10 ratio instead of the 10 to 1 ratio. And yeah, that aggravates me, just like it aggravates you. Here's my hope. My hope is that because 2021 hopefully will not be a COVID football season, and 2021 will not be occurring during an election season, maybe just in this world of college football, we can start getting back to some semblance of normalcy where no one really cares what you believe politically again, and no one's using their college football platform to pretend to be a specialist on infectious disease and epidemiology, and we can just talk about whether Clemson is going to win the ACC again. Wouldn't that be a fun, fun world to live in? Also, Isaac asked this. He said, I'm mostly in agreement with you about the playoff. And it's amazing to listen to someone who agrees. However, one argument my friend always brings up that I don't really know how to answer is it would be fun to watch a lot of the potential playoff matchups if we expanded. Even if Alabama would have steamrolled who they played, he always says Clemson versus Florida would be fun. Ohio State versus Oklahoma would be fun. Notre Dame versus Texas A&M. How do you feel about this point? Well, yeah, they would be fun. They would be fun. It would just come at the expense of the regular season in a lot of those cases. I am not a fan of any kind of college football playoff structure that sets up what normally would be late season sort of de facto play-in games, and instead, they're just playing for seeding. Like in late in the season, you're going to get conference championship matchups, or you're going to get the Iron Bowl, or you're going to get Florida-Florida State, if Florida State were to ever be good again. I mean, imagine those kinds of games. That is the very lifeblood of college football, those regular season do-or-die situations Because of the structure of the sport, you're playing without a safety net under you. You have regular season win or go home type deals. You don't have those anymore. With those highly rated games, teams highly rated playing in those games, I mean, you may just be playing for seeding. Like imagine the pressure packed into that Alabama LSU game last year or like Iron Bowls of years past. And then imagine all of a sudden knowing, well, whoever loses this game, the price they're going to pay is instead of missing the playoff, they're just going to be the sixth seed or the seven seed, or the eight seed. That's ludicrous to try and blend a pro sports model to the totally different world that is college football. And listen, if Ohio State played Oklahoma, yeah, that would be an entertaining game. I don't believe the playoff is the end-all, be-all in this sport. I don't believe that's the most precious commodity in college football. I think the regular season is. And I think it's nice to have a postseason structure tacked onto the end of it. But I am not willing to beef up that little thing that's tacked on at the very end at the expense of our most precious commodity. Our most precious commodity in college football is the regular season. I don't care that expanding the postseason would give you a few more meaningful games. I'm talking about what it takes away. And what it's taking away is one of the most precious layers that exist in sport. And that is the regular season layer of urgency, week in and week out in college football, that you could no longer duplicate and you could no longer manufacture if you had an expanded postseason. You couldn't do it. You're right. The same teams would end up dominating. You would 
have convinced yourselves you're going to get a few more meaningful games, you will have totally eroded the biggest game atmospheres in regular season college football, and I'm not willing to explore that. And hopefully they ask my opinion before they decide this stuff down the road. So that is how the Late Kick Extra podcast works. Again, you can submit your questions, joshpate706 at gmail.com. You can hit me up on Twitter at LateKickJosh. Give me a follow there while you're at it. And we are doing this Tuesday and Thursday every single week unless otherwise stated. Really, really appreciate you guys supporting the show, both the podcast and on the YouTube channel, Late Kick Live. I am in the middle of doing a little overhauling of Late Kick Live. Uh, Some stuff you'll notice, some stuff you may not notice. Some stuff won't even be noticeable until the fall. Uh, But there's a lot of good stuff coming there. It's all because of you. I implicitly thank you over and over again. Can't do it enough. Thank you so much for making that possible. Until next time, for Producer Jordan, I am Josh Pate. Have a great rest of your day, and God bless.